You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Welcome. Um, thank you for coming. Please take a seat, sit on the ground, take your shoes off, feel comfortable. Um, my name is Brad, and I'm Nugi Nunuckle from Minjeriba. Um, and I'd like to just take a moment to think about uh, that's my son, Artie. Um, to think about um, country and the country that we're on and to acknowledge that um, no matter where you are in Australia, you're always on country. We're meeting here today in the um, poorly named Queen Victoria Gardens um, on the land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people and um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians, Wurundjeri Wurrung people. Um, and I was sort of, before we started trying to think about um, what my connection is to the country and what my connection is to this place. And during our previous yarn, um, there was a lot of chat about the water and um, uh, Minjeriba or Stradbroke Island is a country that's you know, it's an island, really, and it's surrounded by water. And I was thinking about um, how, you know, my family growing up would always seek out water on all our holidays, anywhere we went. It was always about, like, chasing water and about feeling comfortable. And, you know, our way of feeling comfortable was being in the water and swimming. And so it's quite... It's sort of convenient that we're, like, this close to... Um, the Birung, but it's kind of also a time to kind of acknowledge and identify that it's not really a place that we can swim um, because there's been a lot of change over a long period of time. Um, and, you know, hopefully through these types of sessions and through engaging with planners and architects and with people in the built environment, we can sort of slowly change and introduce change. So thank you. I'll just throw it to Kaylee. Thanks, Brad. Um, so my name's Kaylee. Um, I'm a Rajari Yorta Yorta Bangarang woman from New South Wales and Victoria. Um, I've been working with the Aboriginal community in multiple roles across multiple sectors for about 15 years. Um, my background is originally in Aboriginal health and population health, and I am now working in the architecture and engineering sector. So it's a bit crazy, but it actually correlates really well. Um, it's, it's a super transferable skill set, and um, I think we've got a, a really good session ahead of us. And um, I guess before I throw it over to um, Neil, I'd also like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, um, elders past and present and, and emerging. Thanks, Kaylee. Thanks, Brad. Um, my name's Neil Appleton from Lyons. So 
architectural uh, business based here in Melbourne, but we work all over Australia. We're, uh, we're very much a public sector firm. We almost do no commercial work. So almost uh, uh, practically all our work comes through government sector funded projects and we have to um, tender and bid on all of those. So I guess that's the relevance of us coming today. And I guess through that, um, our practice in the last 25 years, but you know, I'd have to say tracing the trajectory of, um, of how we're seeing Indigenous engagement and involvement in the design process. Um, things have obviously changed a fair bit in the last 10 years, I'm happy to say. And um, certainly I'd like to bring my experience, our, our practices experience to, that, to the yarn today um, on how we're, how we're seeing it um, both as designers and as I guess uh, responsible citizens, you know, who have been invested to take public money and, and uh, put it into uh, the public realm. Um, uh, to bring that experience to the fore. I mean, I guess given that we work all over Australia, not only do I pay um, uh, my respect to the um, people of the East Kulin Nation um, who, whose these lands they've been the traditional custodians of for many years and um, pay my respects to theirs, but we'd also like to, I guess, um, acknowledge the, the communities that we work with all around Australia in our projects um, and the different perspectives that they bring to all of the, um, the design work we're doing on their country. Um, so I pay my respects to those as well. So thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of hard to start this process um, of talking about AOIs and RFTs without really considering what, you know, the purpose of their output is. Um, why do we need to take, um, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's experiences into perspective and what does a successful outcome really look like? What does it kind of feel like? Because um, if we don't know how to address what the outcome's going to be or what the outcome could be, um, how do we respond to an EOI or an RFT? So I'm really hoping that Neil, you might be able to talk to what a successful outcome not only looks like, but what it also feels like and kind of what's embodied in um, a successful outcome of, you know, engagement with not only traditional, and owner, traditional owners, but also communities. Yeah, I wish I had a, an answer to that. Um, you know, it, it's always extremely different and there's various levels of success as we see it from our perspective. I mean, from our perspective, we see success is that the engagement that we undertake with communities to talk about their place and their perspectives and their stories and 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 then to uh, work with them creatively to bring those into the project with them through it i guess for us a successful project looks like it the completion of the built work is not the completion of the project that there's still a space for creative trajectories in the public uh, project for them to continue to um, build creative trajectories for their community in that space. In other words, you, you work with them on um, investing those stories into a project, but the idea that somehow they get museumified and then that's it, it's done, smoking ceremony, open, see you later, um, for us doesn't necessarily feel like success, the idea that there's ongoing 
connection and habitation of those of those stories and the people within the project would seem like success. And I'd have to say we've seen failure, therefore, if that should be it. I guess if I look at it another way, um, success for us is that it starts early and that there's a meaningful process um, and conversation and that it's not and that it becomes creative and that it's engaged and I guess uh, I guess a dialogue as opposed to simply um, you know we tell stories you take stories and put them into a building um, that that for us isn't isn't really a fulfilling process so there's two different there's different ways of answering that um, but I have to say I don't think there's any perfect measure of success other than you know that it's not uh, it doesn't finish at the end of the built project. Kelly? Um, yeah, happy to add. Um, Brad actually did say he was going to start with this, and I'm like, I don't think I've got anything to add to that. Like, I just, but as you were kind of talking, I, I kind of just realised that um, I, I think we've got different measures of success as, as an Aboriginal engagement practitioner and, and, you know, versus sort of an architect working on the project. Obviously, at the end of the day, you know, they're so keen to, um, you know, have, uh, you know, the outcome is, is the building, is the space. But for me, uh, you know, the positive outcome and a successful um, uh, engagement for me um, is, is definitely how I measure my success and, and ensuring that the community has been um, engaged appropriately um, throughout the whole process. And if that's done to, I guess, my satisfaction and traditional owner engagement satisfaction, um, you know, then, then I'm a happy camper. But a lot of the time it doesn't necessarily happen that way, but I think it's definitely various various um, measures of success. It's, it's, hard, it's a hard one to answer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I guess, you know, for um, a little bit more background and to um, work with what your practice does, Neil, which is a very heavy focus on community projects and sort of civic, civic buildings, um, I think it's you know, fantastic that you sort of take into consideration that we're always building on somebody's country and that there's sort of this innate responsibility as design practitioners um, to work with country and its custodians at every stage. Now, that stage often for civic projects begins with an expression of interest put forward by either a council um, or, you know, a sort of a, a, a private sector. Um, and sometimes we don't have a full gamut of understanding about what kind of um, engagements happened prior to... Sorry, if, it, if anyone's getting the rain, please... Feel welcome to move forward. Make a smaller circle. There's heaps of room. Sit on the floor. Very welcome. We're not scary. And in actual fact, I'm more scared of you. Great. Um, when you're approaching a new project, how do you... How do you really treat that EOI process and how do you sort of, you know, address either the, the lack of information that's been provided or the amount of information that's been provided and how do you sort of view, um, I suppose there's two questions really, how do you address it currently and how do you view it moving forward? 
Okay. Well, again, they're complicated in that there's not one size fits all. It's clearly in the government sector, and I'll speak purely to that because I don't really know what's happening in the private sector um, in in this space. But in the in the public sector, um, you will have government organisations that declare a a desire to for you to. Uh, demonstrate engagement with local community and acknowledge the local community. Um, often it will be very vague as to whether or not in structuring an EOI process that they've actually started. I mean, you know, before an EOI comes out, typically a business case will have been done in a feasibility study. And you kind of imagine that a government organisation would already be engaging with the local traditional owners to say, what do you reckon about this? You know, what do you think? Um, it's always, our experience is it's always extremely vague. It's not like they can point to that, that they've undertaken a consultation process in structuring business cases. Um, possibly they have. Um, so, so firstly, you wonder about that. And then secondarily, there's, there's often a, a kind of a, a fairly vague, I mean, almost never will you see a kind of a, um, a story being told about the country um, in a EOI that, uh, I mean, I guess suggests that they've already undertaken a conversation that um, leads to engagement and authorisation of those stories. Um, and maybe that's a good thing because connecting stories to creative processes is, I think, a good thing. So bringing it into a design process is a good thing. Um, but then you'll have the EOIs that uh, come out and they're completely silent. And so it's like the responsibility is thrown to the designers to go should we be positioning ourselves um, to uh, commit to an engagement process in our um, process and then that will then lead to how do, we, how do we build that into an EOI and then an RFT process competitively and in the time frames that are often put into those things which don't acknowledge the fact that to undertake um, meaningful consultation um, does often take more time and financial commitment um, as a process. And then I think there's probably another trajectory to that too, isn't there, which is that there's engaging with community, but then there's also involvement of um, um, Indigenous design uh, designers in the process, which I think is becoming a much more topical question at the moment. So they're kind of like a headline, headline responses to What's a very broad question, but um, maybe we can no, flesh good. out some of those problems that are coming up in the eyes as we are receiving them through government organisations. Um, in my experience, a lot of the time it actually hasn't been in there, <laughs> so I've had to sort of weasel my way in and, and explain why you know traditional owner engagement is going to be so important to be able to um, undertake through. Um, this process and, and when you start doing that, you know, you've obviously got to think about how it's going to fit into the program and where it's going to fit into the program and at what sort of point, you know, um, uh, we get out there and engage. Um, obviously, always, you know, the earlier the better, but, um, you know, it does take a lot of convincing to get that over the line a lot of the time. So, you know, I think that there's sort of a lot of improvements that can be um, done in, in terms of, I guess, the profession and the willingness to be able to um, work effectively with, with other staff when a lot of the times they're working in the black and white and, you know, traditional owner engagement very much sits in the grey. Um, I think in instances where it has been in there, um, it, a lot of the time... Um, 
the scope is not clear um, and, and it does sort of create some issues with, with um, scope creep and um, it, um, it, it does take, I think, a, a little bit longer to ensure that you're um, engaging in the, in the right way because, you know, you're also balancing out um, what is right in terms of cultural protocol, um, what is right in terms of um, traditional owner capacity and how much they can actually engage with you. Um, and you're also trying to meet client demands on top of that and client needs. So um, it, it, is a, it is a true balancing act to come, to come up with, I guess, a, a solid methodology that's going to kind of meet all of those um, checks and balances when you are putting in um, something at an EOI level or even at the RFQ level. So, And it's, you know, it's especially hard just touching on what you said. Engagement can be... A as long a process as it needs to be, <clears throat> but that's something that's incredibly hard to address when you've got two weeks to put together a you know, an AOI response, um, and you know, engagement's often a non-linear process. It's quite a circular process where um, it, it you sort of put forward, you know, firstly, do you want to work with us, or do you want to? You know, do you want to have some engagement on the project? And then how much engagement do you want to have? And then um, how involved do you want to be and how often do you want to meet with us? They're really, you know, they're sort of the starting points. They're the starting questions. But when you've got a document that you've had for two weeks and you don't have access to the history on those types of questions, how, you know, how fairly or unfairly uh, your responses assessed in an EOI? You know, how do people sort of review what is and isn't um, meaningful engagement and how do you, you know, how do you convey that in such a short period of time um, with no real knowledge of what's happened before? I mean, it's incredibly hard and a lot of the time, you know, as you both said, um, an EOI is put out and there might not have been any engagement or there might have been quite minimal engagement during the business case, um, none of the information of which is kind of available to you. So I'm sort of keen to hear your thoughts on you know, that assessment process. I've got, I've got a bit of an idea on that mm. and it comes back to Kaylee. I mean, she, you're a professional consultant that... No, that Indigenous person who knows that your profession is to engage professionally. And I think maybe you've got to chunk it a bit. You've got to go, in an II, realistically, you're not going to be able to necessarily form uh, space to, you know, as you say, it's kind of often very vague. Um, but what you can do is you commit to have somebody on your team that you say, we, we will um, go forward into a process of genuine engagement um, should we win it, and we and we see that as a essential uh, part of your bid, like a fundamental part of the bid, as opposed to an optional add-on, right? So you know that's a risk one would take, but I think it's a risk worth taking um, in in the process to, um, I guess, uh, demonstrate a commitment. And I'd have to say I do believe more and more government sector agencies are willing to see that as a as an investment in a uh, a richer project. Um, so I'm really just plugging your profession there and saying, well, hey, 
But I, I've got another question, which is kind of like an extension to that too, which is, you know, you have to do your, your bids, maybe not so much RFT, EOIs, but definitely R, uh, uh, RFTs when it gets down to the commercial end of structuring a bid. Like, um, and as you say, if it's all pretty vague, um, how do you how do you kind of go? We've allowed to do this in our fee structures and in our time processes to get a good, meaningful engagement process. Um, and you know, from our perspective, a kind of creative process as well. Um, I think that's a that's a question that I, I wonder how you deal with that. You know, like if you're trying to get in there with your organisation, go. I want to. We should do this. We should add it into our process. How do they? How does one deal with that sort of commercial side of it? Because that's the other issue, isn't it? I'm pretty persuasive. <laughs> yeah, I think you have to be um, in this sector. And and to be honest, um, I, I was saying to Elle before, like I, I'm a big believer of people um, learn, learning organically. Um, so if they've got the opportunity to kind of watch you through the process um, of, of kind of crafting um, the methodology and understanding how it fits in with their um, program in terms of the build, um, you know, they've got a really good insight into the different types of considerations you have to have when you are engaging with traditional owners. Um, but I guess, you know, when, when it comes back to that EOI level, if, if you do manage to kind of get it in there, it's not, a lot of the time, it's, it's not weighted. Um, there isn't any value placed on having an Aboriginal-led engagement team. Um, so, you know, I think there does need to be um, some upskilling or some um, transformation, I think, in, in um, you know, the people that are assessing um, and where they see and find value in um, what is being put forward by um, a, an organisation or a company. Just on that, I guess, you know, in some of our yarns, we're talking about how traditional owners are super stretched at the moment. And, you know, from some of your experience working with architects, we sort of work towards these very strict pressure-driven deadlines with a very strong, you know, almost a sense of, like, demanded entitlement over time with TOs because we want to you know, do this thing and we want to do it right so that we can tell people we're doing it right. Um, I guess, how do you sort of, you know, how do you respond to architects who are so, I guess, aggressively demanding and how do you sort of, how do you address that um, situation? Um. And be as honest and open <laughs> as you want. You Sometimes I do tell them to bugger off. You <laughs> <think> <laughs> no, um, no. Look, I, I, you know, I, I think you've got to be. Um, I, I have to be really strategic about what projects I'm willing to go in on these days. Um, if it's, you know, if I've um, got a bit of a, an idea about um, their past experience working with traditional owners and it hasn't necessarily been good, or if I've got a negative reputation out there in the community because of some individuals, I will literally stay away from projects. Um, and that's, that's basically because, you know, I've got a, a community reputation to uphold and a professional reputation. I think a lot of people yeah. actually forget that, you know. I, I don't sort of switch off. It's not a nine to five for me. I, I can literally go down to Woolies or Coles and someone will pull me up over something I've done in a workplace or a work um, consultation session. So there's a lot of considerations that you kind of need to have when you are working on projects and certain projects that you are taking on. And, and you really want to make sure that you're going in with projects that are that are willing to do that meaningful engagement, that are willing to really invest in it. Um, and working with, you know, a client that is that is super flexible and, you know, doesn't necessarily um, want to 
confine things to a time frame. I think once you, you know, it, obviously we're all going to have time frames, but once you really get strict with the time frames and the programs, especially when you've got, um, I guess, an external, um, you know, an external uh, subcontractor doing your programs, um, it, it does get extremely difficult to have meaningful engagement with traditional owners, um, especially because everyone's got an idea about where it should fit in, but in practice it definitely doesn't work that way because you are on curry time. You know, you go out there, you, you know, things take a lot longer and it is difficult to be able to get in to see traditional owners because they are at capacity. Um, they're already over-consulted and uh, that, that definitely needs to be at the forefront of people's mind and I guess it's a... Um, an Aboriginal engagement practitioner that's always at the forefront of my mind in terms of what projects I take on and, um, you know, what considerations I have when actually crafting up a methodology as well. Mm. I guess just, um, you're sort of touching on, like, some of the systemic change that really we need to see. And I think, you know, a few of the things that we've been talking about today were around, I guess, the accessibility of information and the process of... Um, the business case, the EOI to the RFT, um, is there a sort of, is there um, something that you'd really want to see moving forward when you're looking at, you know, reviewing your new EOIs and new RFTs? Is there something that really sparks, you know, um, from your experience, you know, a change that needs to happen? Perfect world. Okay, so... Um as I say, it would be lovely that, that there's a, a strong and clear um, uh, indication within the EOI RFT that the government's already undertaken an engagement process um, and that they're committed to it and that it's not vague and it's, there's not, it's not lip service or it's not done through some, um, you know, social... Um, inclusion um, policy. It's uh, it's actually you know it's actually been clear. That'd be the first thing. Secondarily, and this is coming back to you know kind of the pace at which you know demanding architects. I think you know that a lot of it has to do with what's set up through the government timeframes on delivery of projects, which meet funding target deadlines, etc. You know that's all built in and. I'm sure any of the architects here would appreciate that the pace at which projects are moving are faster and faster and they're not getting any easier. You know, and that's all set by government deadlines. So an idea that somehow programs are, I mean, this is perfect world, are adjusted to, um, to acknowledge that there needs to be um, creative consultation in, uh, in, built into the design process. Um, and then the point you make, Kayleigh, about that the assessment criteria for bids um, clearly acknowledges in there that you'll be assessed for your commitment um, and the way that you're structuring your consultation and your design process, not just consultation and design process, to um, um, uh, uh, have space for um, that consultation and creativity to occur. That would be um, ideal world. Because then, you know, clearly you can, you can move forward with clarity and, you know, feel like the government's backing in um, the, the idea of building on country, country respectfully. It's sort of like um, the transition in responses from an environmental perspective, which has been very heavily um, industry-led and driven by architects and driven by design practitioners, you know, the movement towards 
um, passive house architecture and you know the movement towards um, creating a more sustainable. I actually hate the word sustainable. Um, you know, I think the best thing someone ever told me was, if I told you that my relationship with my wife was sustainable, would you think that's a good thing? Probably not. Um, love you. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the things that we try to push as design practitioners is really about moving past what the bare minimum requirements are. Um, and it's sort of something that, you know, as architects, we sort of have to adopt and accommodate within our fee structures and within our programs. And we're constantly trying to upskill um, to meet those types of you know, the new requirements that are really placed on architects as something that's more than, you know, someone who has a creative idea about how a space can be used. Um, you know, the responsibility on the industry is quite, quite heavy and a lot of what we do, we are quite a small, tight-knit industry and a small, tight-knit community and, you know, I guess... Um, if you do the wrong thing, it gets spoken about. But at the same time, there shouldn't necessarily be a fear over, over at least trying and at least doing something. Um, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts, either of you, on how you feel about you know this type of a process being industry-led versus being sort of client and government-led. Open to either of you. Um. I've had many instances over the last week where it has been industry-led, where we have had to really push to try to get, um, you know, traditional owner engagement, uh, you know, onto a project because we understand the importance of it. Is it is an organisational commitment from us, and um, you know, it is something that I'm obviously driving as well um, internally. Um, which just baffles me sometimes because, you know, the government, you know, they do have a, um, a commitment to self-determination here in Victoria and, and most um, most EOIs typically or, or RFQs do come out with um, a traditional owner engagement component um, on there. But when it doesn't, I just, I just don't understand why, you know, I'm sorry, we're building on country, something is disturbing country, you know, we've, we've obviously got to engage with traditional owners here um, out of respect um, and to, you know, to, to, to put some um, agency back into the community and to put some self-determination back into community to really sort of, you know, listen to community's voices because it's just something, um, you know, it's still so new here in Victoria, like, um, it, in terms of this sector. Uh, we, we've been doing it a long time in, in health, you know, it's, it's, it's always been a bit of a multidisciplinary approach and, and obviously the community's been at the centre, but um, it, it's still... It's still something that's so new in this sector. So I think, um, you know, where it is falling down on the, the client side of things, we really need to be pushing it and driving it forward. I mean, clearly I'm, I'm uh, an advocate for m more um, upfront government um, clarity and leadership in this space, but I don't think that that's a suggestion that industry shouldn't be leading either. I think... We, it's it's definitely something that should be done from every angle that we can possibly muster. Um, so you know, I believe industry should be committed to doing it and um, and leading change at, at the government level if it can do it. I mean, you, it's interesting you raise climate um, and the response you know over the last ten years to that through the industry and through the government. And obviously, it's it, it's uh, 
um, it raises the question, you know, where you now see, um, at least in the codes, a much higher um, level of um, climate awareness in the National Construction Code. I guess, Brad, I'm asking you whether you think that one could codify and make it more um, a, a thing that cultural engagement needs to be part of a national construction code. There's a, an idea for you. That's you a know, really interesting question. Where the yeah. proofing, cultural engagement. Um, mm. No, of course. But so um, I think that's uh, I think that's worth wondering about. And like you know, and I guess the whole idea of kind of trying to write a manifesto out of a conversation, a dialogue, which is a, again, I said, said to you the other day, I think it's a curious idea. You know, usually manifestos are written by, you know, a singularity. Um, so that's a, a good a good idea. But um, could that then become a kind of code? And, you know, codes are too fixed, I think, in some ways, but it's kind of mm. interesting dream, isn't it, where you see climate getting codified into, into practices. Um, that's one thing. And then the only other thought that I, I wanted, if we should bring into the conversation, given Andrew's here and, and is often running competitions, and we do lots of competitions, right? And that's the other thing, you know, we've talked about kind of slightly more mm -hmm. normative processes, EOI, RFT, where it's capability, experience, fee, um, commitment, blah, blah. Then, then you've got a design competition, right? And of course, mainly they're a sprint um, mm -hmm. and they're a mad sprint. And you know, it does beg the question through a design competition process, where you're being asked, often to author something that you know obviously is subject to change, but nonetheless is a thing, an object. How you then incorporate the processes in? And I'm, I mean, you know, obviously when we extend the conversation further around the circle, um, it'd be great to get some perspectives on that too, because that's a that's a conundrum, I think, a real conundrum. Um, and as much as I enjoy competition processes that that's always a that's always a um, an interesting experience to feel like that you're trying to dream up a, a story um, um, and I guess maybe it points to the fact that you need to have indigenous designers in that in that process of the competition um, to I mean you know not to authorize it but to enrich it and to uh, you know somehow um, make it a deeper response. Anyway, there's a few thoughts there. but I feel the same about, um, I guess, the assessment um, side of things in terms of, you know, the traditional owner engagement. There, there definitely should be an Aboriginal staff member or someone making the determination whether or not this is a ticker box engagement um, or whether this is actually genuine, meaningful engagement. I just don't know if that happens. Um, so I think that there is a systemic thing or that we, we could sort of strive to sort of change there. But um, there's a lot of things that kind of sit behind it to actually get that bit to happen. Um, I think um, I 100% agree with you. I feel like if you're working on anything that's a design competition in particular, um, you know, as I said at the start, we're always working on somebody's country and we always need to work with the traditional owners and how do you really do that at a design competition phase? I actually, I have no idea what the answer is because, um, you know, if you're an Indigenous person working in an architecture firm, there is sort of pressure placed on you to be, I guess, I don't, I'm sort of struggling with the correct terminology here. Culturally unsafe. Culturally unsafe. Yeah, and 
as you said earlier, cultural loading. Um, and it's hard because, you know, you sort of, you want to have some kind of involvement in the process um, and you want to work to achieve the best possible outcome. Um, but how do you do that when you know that you're putting forward maybe an idea or a design that hasn't, you haven't had the opportunity to talk with a traditional owner or you haven't had the opportunity to talk with community? Um, I, I don't know what the answer is to that. Like it's a, it's a really hard part of every design competition. Like if people around the room have thoughts on it, please let me know during our next phase, um, which I think we're due to start now-ish. Yeah, unless... Uh, just, uh, uh, just one thought on that. Um, there's there, we see two types of design competitions that come out. There's the one which goes, you will kind of pretty much describe the object that we want mm -hmm. and as much as we'll reserve the right to tell you bits and pieces that we don't like, it's kind of like here's the authored object and it's a, and then, you know, it's kind of like you need to kind of describe your vision thoroughly. That's number one, which sort of, you know, I guess there's less space in that process. Um, and then the second one would be where they're asking you to kind of in some ways give a, an approach to how you think about it. So you're not trying to go, this is the finished thing. This is the way we're starting to think about it, which means that it's an, still an open idea about how you can do that. And often those competitions, part, what you're competing on as well is your process, not just your the object. In fact, the object's almost secondary. If you over-describe it, then that's a problem. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's, you know, to have those two models there and to discuss those, the pros and cons of them, uh, might be worth doing uh, in the broader forum, I think. So um, this next phase, we're sort of putting it to the floor. Anyone who has any thoughts um, or comments or would like to contribute to the conversation in any way, please you know, feel very welcome to jump in. Okay. Um, I'll just preface my thoughts with... Sorry, just before we start, yeah. I just want to say, if you could just um, let us know who you are and where you're from. I was about to do that. I was going to say that okay, my name sorry. is Daphne Flynn. I'm from um, Monash University and I run a design lab in industrial design. So I'm not an architect, right? So just preface my, what I'm about to say with that. And I've also had a Campari spritzer, which is very good. Perfect. And I'm a bit wet, so I could be a bit delirious. Perfect combination. But, um, yeah, so I just thought that, you know, that the commissioning body, whether it's the government agency or local government or whoever it is, if they invested the time to create a cultural experience specification so they engaged you early and um, just kind of created a brief that took into account some really critical aspects of culture that need to be captured, when the OI goes out, because I've seen the same thing happen when um, hospital tenders are going out, right? It's just horrible. It's like these are all the th boxes we need to tick and you've got three months to come up with a fantastic design that's going to work in 10 years' time, right? So it's, it's a really hard brief. So there needs to be some investment up front, I think, I don't know what you think about this, just to create that specification and gives you the, the framework that you can work within and you can still be as creative as you, you can be but at least you've got the tenets of what will make your design work for the... For you know, the particular area you're going to be building in. Do you want me to say something? 
Um, 100%. 100%. That was us going, uh, talking sort of earlier on, like um, if you're engaging with traditional owners at that business case level and understanding, one, how they want to be engaged throughout the whole process um, and and two, what type of design outcomes they want to see achieved with this project, we are, you know, guns blazing for when it actually hands over to the contracting agency. Like we are in such a good position to be able to sort of pick up and roll with that relationship then on with, you know, just knowing that traditional owners have been engaged from the beginning. They completely understand the project. They've been engaged on the project prior to us coming on board. They know that we're coming. We come in and we're able to sort of hit the ground running. That That is the ideal situation. Yeah, I agree. Um, I guess the interesting, you know, I was sort of um, joking a bit before about the code idea, um, but but again, specification is a is a, a terminology that you put in a design brief to somehow control it. I think the important point that Kaylee makes about that is that the the idea that there's been a process that talks to the kind of cultural value and significance of place, and and um, at a high level for me is a demonstration of a government a commitment, but I kind of feel like the most rich ones, projects for us, aren't where we kind of then go away and then interpret that and come back and go, here's the sort of the translation of that into a, into a thing or an object. It's kind of like you go, okay, well, this is what we might think about that and then what's the design process with the traditional owners and custodians to, to then bring that object to life. Um, and I think the point I was making right at the start about um, the changes, that you can make objects, but uh, and let's call them buildings for want of a better way of putting it. Um, and the idea that somehow you've brought stories and narratives into those um, buildings that are, that are meaningful and have been authorised by traditional custodians, but then they stop there and somehow then you're... and that there's no way that the stories continue to grow. And these are public projects, like these are ones that are being built for the community, so they're therefore being built for the First Nations community as well. And that they then... It's like what you don't want is that the stories stand there and then the, then the welcome stops. And I guess that was the sort of process. And I guess I use a project we worked on in Yagan Square, which... Um, was uh, for the MRA, and I've ex I was talking to Brad and Kaylee about this the other day over coffee. Um, you know, where it was this is about the success of a project. Um, you know, and there was a really thorough, deep, um, creative process with the Wajuk Working Group, um, led by Dr. Richard Wally. And it was a, it was for us, it was a, a revelation. It was a really fantastic process. It was, um, uh, it enriched the design, um, and that went all the way through got into construction um, and when it was finished, the government flipped the funding, the funding for the ongoing programming of the of Yagan Square stopped and consequently it disenfranchised all of the people who'd worked to get it to there to say, now we can bring these stories to life, we can then have creative trajectories out of here, so we'll put, we can put performances on here, etc, etc, our culture continue to thrive. That just all died. Um, because of a flipper government. So I guess I'm starting with the idea of a specification. Of course, we're endorsing that idea of whatever you want to call it, a framework, a guide, a, you know. Um, you know. Um, but the, for me, what's important is that, the, that there's a much richer process through design and all the way through and beyond the life of the commissioning of the building. I mean, that's a, you know, that it, that it functions as a public building for all of the community. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, I agree. You know, construction and beyond, um, you know, it's about sort of making sure the government is investing at that beyond stage as well. Um, is super important. Um, and, you know, working with traditional owners to identify, you know, how is the space going to be looked after? How is the space going to be cared for? What type of role you want to be able to play um, in, the, in the rest of this, you know, space after, after we finish construction? So. I think sort of, sorry, um, sort of going back to, um, for those who were there for the talk um, prior to this one, it's really talking to, you know, acknowledging the fact that Aboriginal cultural heritage is a living cultural heritage and that it's not an anthropological exercise and that, you know, it's, it's ongoing and there are new stories as well as old stories and things are continuing to grow and evolve. Um, so I think that's a really important thing to, you know, take out of handing over a project or handing over something at completion. You know, there's going to be another life to it. Just as adding to that, do not try to use a CHMP to pull out cultural <laughs> designs. That has been, um, you know, something that someone has come to me to try to do, and I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> so, hot tip. Thanks. Cultural management. What is it? Cultural heritage management plan. You get in a lot of trouble if you do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, my name is Andrew McKenzie I'm from CityLab. Uh, uh, we're competition advisors. I'm with um, Philip here, Philip Pander, my colleague. Um, and uh, I, I guess, first of all, um, I have to take this slowly because it's so complicated and so um, deeply gnarly. Um, I'll start with the good news. Um, when, when, so we, we, I've been advising on competitions for about uh, 14 years, and we've advised on nearly 40 across the country um, of different scales. Um, up until as little as three or four years ago, no one ever really talked about, uh, at least to me, uh, about um, traditional owners and uh, really about how we, how competitions respond to um, traditional owners and First Nations people. Uh, three, four, maybe five years ago. Um, now, last year and this year, over about eight competitions, everyone is talking about uh, about this. Um, that's the good news. So there's a there's clearly a change in in um, in, the, in the kind of mood. The, the downside is that that's almost invariably where it stops. It's an open question at the beginning, like, so what are we doing with traditional owners? Uh, they, they're asking me, like, I just got the job, and they've been doing a business case, and they've been doing strategic analysis, and they've got surveys, and they've had fucking four years of five years, eight years of development to get to that point, and then they look at me and say, so what are we doing about cultural engagement? Um, and you always immediately know you're in like you're in, in not a good position to win uh, at, at that point. It almost feels to me now at the moment when we start a project, you have to sort of think of is, is the project in one of three areas? Have they done fuck all? In which case, you can't really, you can't do it. Like because I know what the programs are like. Neil's alluded to this, alluded to this already. Um, EOIs, competitions, any combination of of kind of these kind of procurement processes there total boot camps for everyone. They're boot camps for the clients because usually they got ministerial advisors and people high up the chain saying get it fucking done and get a contract by December next year. They're boot camps for all of us who are there advising and the technical advisors, all the rest of it because you've got six weeks to do that and four weeks to do that. They're boot camps most importantly for the competitors because they have a ridiculous amount of work to put together. 
So I don't know what it is, but you know, the only way we can make it work is if we codify the shit out of everything and have documents almost ready to go that we just have to amend very quickly because everything has to be done on the fly. So time is one thing. Secondly, um, uh, there's, um, if they haven't already done the engagement or had any material to work with, there's another layer that we have to apply on everything, which is the whole layer of probity. Now, our general kind of approach is every competition is to be fair, equitable, and transparent. So, so, so I, we have to pl apply this lens of what's equitable. What that really means is that everyone gets the same documents. Everyone gets the same information. There's no distinction from competitor one and competitor 94 in what they get. And immediately, as soon as you roll through that, equitable means everything is totally do uh, kind of documented and codified before you start. So the idea of a living process or a process that involves, dare I say it, trust. Trust is the opposite of what we do in competitions. Like if there's trust involved, it means there's a gap that we don't quite know what's there. But our job is theoretically to provide no gaps. This is the GFA. This is the budget. This is the program. This is what we're doing with sustainability. It's six star. To get there, you have to do everything is codified. So trust is the last thing we have. So we've got no time. We usually have nothing to start with. We have no trust. Um, and then we have this, uh, this issue around how do we make it fair and even for, for everyone. Um, some competitions, the, the more expensive and bigger the competitions they are, the fewer the numbers. You might have 20 people, 20 competitors or 25 competitors. The smaller the competition is, uh, smaller capital works, the more people who can enter. You might have 80 or 100 competitors. So how could you begin to have any kind of living dynamic, one-to-one -one relationship that we help curate with 90 different competitors? So there's just there's so many ways that it's set up to kind of fail. And if, if, they, if, if you come to a process where they have done some work, then that's good because at least you can build some material into the brief and you can set parameters for what you're expecting. But again, uh, you know, one of the challenges I have, a really dumb question. Let's suppose, just to be rude, that uh, we got one practice that's really great, DBJ, John Wardle. And we got one practice that's not so good, Buckins. Um, I'm going to call it out. I don't care. Okay, I don't think Buckins is a very good practice, so I'm just putting it right there. But it could be any one. We all have our own. We slot your own name in there, right? Of a practice that's not, not not very good. In fact, so leagues apart from the top end of really good design. They're clearly, you know, so. So the other, just the other layer of this is how do you deal with asymmetries happen where let's just say, a really pedestrian practice actually gets their shit together and has a really good uh, engagement process and a really good kind of policies about how to bring traditional and, and, and indigenous representation into the process. And this other practice that does very good capital A architecture has done a, not a bad job, but really not, a, not as good enough, not as good as the other guys. So then we have this whole asymmetry is about putting the jury in a position where they're saying, Christ, the DBJ have been doing amazing work, or whoever it has been amazing work. We'd love them to give it, but geez, like their sustainability is not so good, and their engineering is not so good, and their traditional owners not. You know, so you, then you have how do you balance those against each other? It's, 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 it's. As I said, the good thing is that there's, there's energy behind trying to um, do things better than they were in the past, and and people are asking questions at least, we're asking questions about what's the way to do this. The downside is that with the agency we have, usually 
we can only steer it a tiny bit. It's like a ship's going in a direction, and I've got a little outboard motor, and I can just nudge it a little bit over to the northeast a little bit, or that, like, like that. But until we have a more widespread um, connect, meaningful connection between the industry and, and traditional, a widespread, it's always going to be trying to play catch-up. And, and that's, the, that's the challenge to me, is that we've just got really difficult um, uh, codes we're trying to bring together. Um, and, and for a century or more of design competitions, they haven't had to deal with it. And now we're, we're in the space of, for my, in my case, in the space of four or five years, we're trying to, and I'm putting my hand up every time saying, how do we do this better? But I also know that there are other fuckers trying to do you know, competitive processes that don't give a shit. And so it's like, okay, how do I find a meeting, a, a ground here where I actually get invited to do another one, um, uh, but also make it a little bit better, try and make it a little, you know, what, what, what's my agency? It usually it's less than some people think. Hi, Jeff Croker from... FJMT Architects. Um, you guys know we take it very seriously, but I guess there's two analogies I just wanted to share after a glass of wine. One is that I remember, I'm old enough to remember when sustainability and environmental design was something very new and developers were petrified by this thing that we had to add and how much would it cost on top of a traditional building or cost another 20% and should we do it and what's the easiest way around this and let's put some you know, green car parks down there and a few bike racks. Now we, anyhow, and I think in society, that so-called pressure, it's, it's really not even thought about. We, we, will, we will deliver a green building with a client once or not, and we'll hopefully get paid for it. But I guess my point being is that over 10, 15 years, it's, it's really standard practice. And you'd be, you, clients demand it. And they were actually driven by the banks who... who um, struggled to find, when they were employing graduates, the graduates wanted to know about the banks they were working for and, and they wanted to know the sustainability agenda. So it was actually ironically driven from the bottom up, not from the top down. So I, I sort of think there's possibly a little bit of that analogy to what we're talking about now, in that, as you mentioned, there's, there's generally an, an energy, may not be kind of clever yet or, or refined, there's certainly an interest across the board, certainly within the design profession, um, and I think that's something that doesn't necessarily need to be codified. So that's my experience is that um, it's actually, you know, ESD happened without the codes, although they are there now. The second thing I wanted to share was that our experience, my personal experience in architecture is it should be fun or we shouldn't do it. So, and the experience we've had in this process has always been delightful. We've had clients who have been, petrified and wanted to organise, you know, we're going to meet these people, how are we going to deal with it and here's some questions and rehearse it. And, but in fact, it's actually been delightful every time. And we've dealt with musicians, jazz players, dancers, you name it. That, that creative process isn't limited to architecture whatsoever. So I guess there's sort of two things. I, I'm a little more, in fact, I'm a lot more optimistic about it. And I think that as a profession, uh, we're, we're in a very joyful position where we can actually be involved in that process. And, and I, I look forward to... Uh, working that way from here on in. Okay, I'm going to hijack the microphone because I can't not. 
at this point. Um, my name's Sarah Lynn Reese. I'm a Palawa Trawai Plangamarina woman and the, the, had the joy of curating this series for the last five years. Um, I just want to pick up on a few things because it is wonderful to work in partnership with traditional owners, but there is a huge cultural risk that's involved in entering competition processes where you are, especially as an Indigenous person on that team, you are being put forward as a person that has to speak on behalf of country when it's not your country. And if you did that in any other context, you would be slapped around the head by those elders and you would be really, really punished for doing that. But somehow it's allowed to happen in a competition process, which is really unacceptable. There are... Well, I've like I, we had a yarn on Saturday, and I like dropped thirty seconds of what I think needs to happen in the competition process. But maybe that needs to be a wider yarn. But it is possible, and yes, it might be limited in different ways. But it has to happen. And the picking up on a couple of the conversations that have happened earlier, both yesterday and today. You know, it needs to happen at every level. It's not just competitions, it's also planning. It's, it's everyone. Everyone needs to do their part in order for this to happen. But the most, most, most fundamental thing, regardless of anything else, is that something that Maddie said yesterday and something that we've all said in different forms, we are visitors on this country. We are not the traditional owners of this country. And as a responsibility in Aboriginal law, we need to follow the laws of country. And so fundamentally, if nothing else, the only thing that 100% hands down touch every piece of wood on the planet needs to go into any of these processes are the values and laws of country. And if there's no time for anything else, that has to be there. And if that is in this context, we're talking about not harming the waterways and not harming the children. Now, we've been harming the bloody waterways for fucking ever uh, since colonisation. And you need to be... Like, we as architects need to be aware of our responsibility in terms of Aboriginal law. So if you can't engage with traditional custodians, you can at least do that with a commitment and a promise to engaging later in the process. But maybe you and I need to sit down and have, like, a three-hour yarn about this because, you know, I've got thoughts and I recognise that it's complex and challenging in your reality, but we need people like you to be leading this space and saying it can be done and this is how it can be done. Um, otherwise, it's not going to change because it's all too everything fits into the too hard basket. And I get the parallel with sustainability, but the issue there is that sustainability is quantifiable and it's measurable and this is cultural. This comes from law, from our law, and you can't put them in the same bracket because it's not measurable, it's not quantifiable. You can't go, we've achieved this because we've done X, Y, Z. You can't put numbers to it. Sorry, I hijacked. Can, can I just maybe redirect to Andrew without wanting you to take care forever, Andrew, because there's a lot of other people who want to talk. But the question that I posited around two models, it seemed to me you described model number one, author as architect, fast process, totally codified, utterly accessible, no trust. You will give us the brief exactly as we've explained it. Um, what about the second model, the one that's more about um, what, what you're offering as a process and, uh, um, you know, and a, and a set of ideas, but they're ideas that are completely contingent on a deep conversation with the client and the traditional custodians. Well, it is a good point because I guess um, a few years ago I used to feel like um, 
that the design competition, the two-stage design competition was the best way forward, always the best way forward, and that the EOI was the poor cousin, like this expression of interest, it's dry, it's all about your past experience, and it's, there's no richness, there's no design creativity in there. And in the last few years, we've started working with EOIs that are a bit richer, uh, just in a fairly you know straightforward, I'm sure you've done loads of them, where alongside your track record, alongside your team, you have a task appreciation and a methodology statement. Um, and within that, we 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 have a very care we ha we tread a very careful line because we don't want the EOI to become a design response in terms of sections, plans, and elevations, but we do want to glean a sense of how your design intelligence is working in relation to this project. And th the more we do those, the more I'm thinking, geez, maybe some competitions should just stop right there. We just have a richer a richer EOI that has some good quality design response in terms of your approach, how you're thinking about this. Yes, sketches, site plans, some initial kind of, you know, strategic thinking perhaps, um, but we pull right back from the design response stage because slightly to the side of this conversation, but connected to it, is what's now being increasingly expected in a full design response competition which is everything to be fucking designed down to the push plates and GPOs. And we have this crazy process where we squeeze this into eight weeks. We get high res renders, so bang, there's your building. And then after you sign a contract, you're supposed to start um, schematic design. You're supposed to start it after you've done all this crazy work. So it's not the same as this question, but it's connected because we are asking so much from, these design, from, the, from the design response stages now that used to be my go-to. Yeah, let's get the full. Let's get perspectives and interiors, and let's let's see the design. And I think that can still work if you're with reasonable clients. But more often than not, they want to load up the high-res renders, the one to twenty bloody con uh, construction plan uh, uh, sections, all of those details in an eight-week period where you've had zero, almost zero contact with the end user or the client. Um, so, in answer to your question, I think I think I think actually there is some version of a hybrid EOI which is richer than it used to be, but not as bonkers as some of the full, full design. And I, and I think that's, you know, we're going to start recommending that on some projects. We did a little one with Nightingale a couple of months ago, which was like that, you know, high level, nice and simple, didn't cost the earth for everyone to enter, but there was enough in there to differentiate between half a dozen or more competitors. So, but, but if you do a full design response thing, I, I still think you're sort of struggling because you're still, how do you, how do you do a design response where you're actually building form, shape, space, and experience, even at a high level, if you don't have that traditional owner engagement? Um, um, but maybe if you have the EOI and you can pull it down to four people or five teams, and then you allow a gap of time, maybe that's the other way of doing it. So you, you run with your EOI, but then you have two months in between stages where you regroup and say, okay, you're the four. Um, now you need to do X, Y, and Z, including engaging meaningfully with, you know, with traditional owners. That's, you know, if we ever get, if we ever actually get two months jammed into a program, which is never really the case. Um, the time frame is, you know, particularly frustrating. And um, actually just wanted to sort of redirect some of what you're saying to just ask Kaylee. You're relatively new to the design industry. You've had an incredible amount of experience um, over the last you know, however many years. Um, 
hearing about how architects work on a design competition where, you know, this, the, the one option where you're putting forward a design in a civic space on country without engagement, like, are you, you know, what, what do you sort of make of that? And be as honest as you want to be. Um, I don't know how um, companies are doing it, but, you know, I'd be pretty concerned about cultural appropriation and, and how you're actually, you know, designing with country and, and um, designing um, country uh, in built form without actually engaging with traditional owners or, or Aboriginal community at all. Um, I'm always conscious of over-consultation and I think if there's, you know, design competition with 100 people entering, you don't want to go and overburden traditional owners by, you know, getting them to all be engaged in, in coming up with culturally appropriate designs. So, so I don't really have an answer, but yeah. they're the types of things that I'd probably be thinking about. So there sort of needs to be a strategy moving forward on these um, processes where, you know, using... <coughs> I guess the giant building that's going behind the NGV as um, a very real and um, tangible example where, you know, we are, it is, it is challenging and you are asking a lot of architects. Um, but your need, the, the balance between asking a lot of and not asking enough of community and traditional owners is um, very real. And, you know, I think we've, we've also sort of spoken a lot about TOs and kind of ignored that there's actually a wider Aboriginal community that needs to be a part of this whole process of engagement. So, you know, it's sort of just something to keep in mind um, when you're going through not only the engagement process but also the design process. Um, Anyone else have any questions? And, and like maybe maybe that's it. Like maybe it is a tiered approach when you're looking at traditional owner or Aboriginal community engagement. Where at the final stage, when you are looking at um, you know selecting something, that's at that level that you're engaging with traditional owners. But there is an expectation that they are engaging with the wider community. Um, you know, prior to that. Hi, sorry. Um, I'm Jess. I'm a non-Indigenous woman um, living and working on Wurundjeri country. Um, I'm a landscape architect and um, I was just wondering about, um, yeah, what you think about um, designing for um, Aboriginal people kind of specifically. So I guess, I don't know, some briefs come out where it's Indigenous design is included and nothing is talked about about what that might be. And so, of course, traditional owner engagement is inferred, but um, if the project is specifically... Um, kind of partly for Aboriginal people, how um, might you best um, think about um, addressing that, yeah, within your proposal? I think any public project is for Indigenous people. Um, but I guess that's an easy thing to say. Um, it's a harder thing to do. But I think your question's more like if, for instance, it was a community centre in a community, um, how do you approach it? Um, I think, I mean, I think we're learning about that more and more. I mean, I've got colleagues in Western Australia that I've collaborated with that do a lot of work up in the communities. Um, 
uh, community centres, etc., and they invest an immense amount of time uh, and effort because, as you say, Jeff, it's in a very enjoyable part where they go into the communities and they come down to the to the pace of the communities and they sit and talk and usually over a meal. Um, and they they design through that. Um, we, we we're currently in um, in a process of designing some studio schools in um, Western Australia and um, Arnhem Land as well. So we're we're now learning as well. But certainly, the idea is that you go to the site and you design at the site. That's our starting point: is to think about actually designing at the site with the community and starting a process. Now we're 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 design professionals and. Um, you know, just got to acknowledge the community might not be design professionals, but certainly they're the client, and so consequently that would be our starting point is to go to country. And I've got one of my fellow directors who's doing that at this minute in Western Australia. He's on country, on the place of the of the school, and um, you know, it's I mean, let's face it, as an architect, what joy that is to be able to do that. You know, that's like that's why you get up in the morning, isn't it, to have that experience. Well, I guess that should be all projects, really, shouldn't it? Um, having those conversations and almost designing on country. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to agree. Um, definitely walks on country, getting out there on country with um, elders, traditional owners, understanding the, the stories, the history, um, looking at opportunities for truth-telling, um, you know, because obviously it's going to inform design because that, that is, um, you know, that, that passed down knowledge from generations. It is obviously going to influence design. You need to understand that um, from a design perspective. So getting out there on country is super important. I want to put another idea out there. Um, I, think, I think to be able to um, undertake a creative engagement process, and I use that again because I don't think it stops with just gathering narrative and then going away and designing something, um, is that I think you have to be, you have to be by very nature a collaborator. And I guess I feel like the model of architectural practice, you know, I don't know, hasn't always been a collaborative one. I feel like it's often been um, kind of like a master I'm a master architect and I will design your building for you and you will accept my building and you will not critique it because I'm the expert and you're not. And we all know that. We all know that version of the world. But I feel like a lot's changed in the last um, 10 years, 15, maybe longer, I don't know, around architects no longer feeling like the, that collaboration is an impost. It's the opposite. It's actually... A, it's actually a, um, it's valuable and, you know, we just seen the NGV comp, you know, there's obviously a lot of people involved in that. We've done lots of projects where we have teams of architects of all different shapes of sizes collaborating in it um, but I, and artists, um, other creatives. And I, what I guess is I would suggest that that's something you extend into your relationship with traditional owners, that it's a collaboration because it's going to be richer. And I actually think that if you go... You know, the idea that it's an impost suggests that on a complex project to involve more people is makes it too hard. I actually think it's the inverse. And I think, you know, on complex projects, it's actually good having more people to get to the end quicker um, or with more value than, than otherwise. And I guess, you know, ideal world. But I reckon we've got real experience in that. And I think that's something the design profession needs to do is to be much more open to collaborating, cross-disciplinary collaborating and traditional owners and custodians is part of that. 
I completely agree. I think it, <clears throat> it's a really great point that you raise about the idea of um, collaboration and about what collaboration looks like and about the architect sort of letting go a little bit about, you know, having real ownership over um, the design and the architectural outcome, particularly when there's um, other stories that have led to the design and led to the design outcome. And I think it's, um, you know, it, it's definitely common in the architectural industry for um, people to, as you say, you know, feel like they're the master leading the project. Um, and it's kind of a dangerous position. And if we can reach a point where we can really let go of that like design ownership, I think that'll be a really interesting place for architecture to end up. Yeah, shared ownership. Or, or even stepping back completely, um, you know, empowering the community and it's community ownership over these spaces. Yes. Um, my name's Monique Woodward. I'm a non-Indigenous um, architect, director of Wawawa. And I was just um, not sure if it was appropriate to pivot right now, but as we were talking, I was thinking around the judging panels that are choosing these projects and um, that, that I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, yeah, I guess the NGV competition, they're all... <laughs> you can take it. <laughs> um, you know, I guess when representation matters and your thoughts on that. Okay, I've seen the design. I'm just <laughs> putting it out there, pretty honest. Um, I thought it was a real huge missed opportunity. You are right on the Yarra. Um, you've got, you know, strong traditional owners here on both sides of the river. Um, there is a First Peoples Creative Hub that is going to be built um, in and around this kind of area, um, precinct. You've got the Koori Heritage Trust on the other side. That space could have been a perfect opportunity to be able to represent culture in built form. There should have been an Aboriginal person or there should have been traditional owners involved in the assessment process. <laughs> Do you want the right of reply? Yeah, I want the right of reply. Andrew was going to So, um, we, went, we went on a journey with that one. Um, and any of you who are observant will have known that we had, um, we had Mary Clark on the jury in stage one and in the EOI, and then she moved to a role of um, special advisor in stage two. And without getting into the detail too much, um, I think what's sometimes uh, easy to uh, underestimate is the extent of um, specialist te te technical knowledge. That's, it's a, it'll be over $800 billion when it's, uh, a million dollars when it's finished. Uh, It'll, yeah, it's, 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 it's hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of a, of a project. Um, it, uh, it will have the laser focused of, of, of Development Victoria every step of the way through the process. It's the whole, pro the whole competition was very um, overwrought in its technical requirements. And there's just nothing I could do about that. So it was overwrought. <clears throat> and, and the material that we were seeing, having been an observer of, of architecture for 30 years, I'd spent hours just understanding 
the plans and the sections and how it all fits together and what the qualities were, where the smart moves were and where they weren't. Most of the jury, having really good people on the jury who are hugely, like professors have been, you know, this is their whole life is looking at sections and plans and understanding qualities between them. <clears throat> having deep conversations around, you know, this one versus that one or whatever. And you don't, it's very hard to step into that. <clears throat> and, 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 and it becomes very quickly, there's a self-consciousness that goes with being in that. If you feel that, your role is a kind of a, it, it's, a, it's, a it's in the middle of all that, but it's not all that as well. So you may not be able to make a judgment as to whether the viability of one versus the other, how, how do you assess that? So you've got people like Corbett, you know, on the jury, chairing the jury with, you know, decades of experience of looking at plans and sections and working out what's doable, what's not doable. And he's spending days and days trying to make, trying to have a, have a view on this. So, so I guess it, you, do, you do have a bit of a challenge here where there's lots of, like I wouldn't expect someone to step in and make a, make a, make a judgment around um, law, corporate law. If, if they don't know the background and precedence. They can make a comment in terms of its impact on culture, they sure can. But in terms of like actually say changing laws in, in the high court, or you know, there's a, there's a huge amount that goes with being, having studied for seven or eight years, then having worked for 20 years and building up that understanding. And so one of my challenges <clears throat> is, what's the right way of getting somebody involved? And in that case, for Mary Clark in stage two, it was to bring her, invo bring her involvement as an, as an indigenous artist, to talk about the space and the different submissions in relation to whether or not they are <clears throat> appropriate spaces for the experiencing and engaging with, with art. So, so I don't want to put somebody else in a position where they feel that um, uh, an asymmetry in, her, in their experience. They need to be there to do the bit that they're really good at, but if that's, but that's not, the same as viability. It may not even be the same as sustainability in some regards, you know? So that's the, that's the, that's the, the honest and frank challenge we, we sometimes have. And, and I usually have to fight the opposite fight with the client to say, no, you can't have that fucker on the jury because they, they're not a design professional. You can't have that person because they're not a design professional. I'm always fighting the argument that you can't just because they're a stakeholder or just because they're friends with somebody or, and they've gone, you know. I'm, I'm usually fighting that fight like how to pull it back so we've got five or six really super qualified people working together. And so in that context, it's, it's quite complicated. And my view is that you, you hone a terms of reference for an advisor and that you get that role right. And if that role is right, then maybe that's a better way to go. It, I, I just wouldn't mind kind of uh, coming into this conversation because your point about going, you put people on a jury because they have competency to judge it in the context of how the competition's framed. But if you frame it differently, yeah, yeah. you can have a different jury. Totally. Totally. So maybe it talks to where it starts as opposed to where it is. So I think that's... Just very quickly, very, very quickly. Where it starts is important. And if there's one observation about this is that the upstream, we, the last week there was a whole conversation about upstream designers and upstream effects. The upstream is where all this gets codified and really, really the culture of the project begins right upstream. And that's where we need smart architects and designers and design thinkers and creative thinkers right up at the beginning when they're doing a business case. Like, what's our view at the business case? When we're doing the very first conversation around budgets. Like, 
that's when you, if you get to it three years later and as a competition advisor plugged in, all they can do is just move it a little bit. It needs to be upstream. Um, can I just add that it's so important when you're engaging um, an Aboriginal person to have, I guess, their, to, to share their expertise in terms of, um, you know, culture on, on a panel that you don't allow their voice to get lost in the process and, and be smothered by technical expertise. Um, you know, you've got to find a way to be able to elevate that voice and, and, and make sure the voice is heard. Yeah, I think that's, you've touched on exactly what I was thinking. Um, and for those who know me, I'm incredibly easily offended and I get upset so quickly. And all I heard then, and please correct me if I'm wrong, was that um, you didn't engage any um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as, uh, who were trained in architectural profession on the panel. There was a there, there was a there was the, the an vague, artist. There, there was a, no no not no exactly an artist because we wanted maximum participation of registered architects who are indigenous to participate as competitors. We 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 wanted anyone who was able to participate as competitors. That was the that was the thinking there, and that's all. And that's often a, a bit of a challenge for us, which is that, um, and it's not just traditional is it's also the same for sustainability consultants or facade engineers the people you really would give you the best advice on a panel are probably also going to give you the best idea as a competitor and you can't obviously do both so um there are some you know incredibly talented um educators who could also participate in those types of panels and you know i think it it's sort of the justification sounds more like um, you're really, or it feels like more an identification of a missed opportunity. Would those educators be able to look at four spreadsheets and make a determination of the viability of one or the other? I think we'd take this conversation separate to now and move on because okay. it's getting quite technical and I love you, Andrew. Um, but it's probably a bigger and wider conversation in a room that's not this one. Yeah, um, does anybody else have a question? I just, I just have a comment really quickly. What about just making the assessment process more accessible for people to be engaged with? It's a really big, complicated story. Let's talk about that separately. Let's have a separate yarn about this. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I think we've got around 25 minutes for Sarah to get us to write a whole manifesto about how we can do this whole process um, eloquently and perfectly. Mm. No, not really. It's, um, it's <laughs> no, uh, it's more, you know, this next part, we just really like to give everybody the opportunity to take time to think about um, either and to comment on either something that they've heard during the conversations today or something that they'd really like to see introduced in the EOI or RFT process um, or, you know, their thoughts on either systemic change um, and I think I'll start with Sarah, if that's okay. Sure. I mean, I've got a million and a half thoughts on this. It's a, well, I think we've learned today that, like, we didn't really cover off half the things that we've been speaking about for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And it's such a, it's a really important topic, and it's only become more and more prevalent over the next few years. Yeah. Um, but, 
Yeah, Please. there's thank you. And thanks for hosting this yarn. There's a lot of change that needs to happen and it is a complex area, um, complicated by bureaucracy and probity and a whole manner of things that um, you sort of have to be in to know. So I appreciate you sharing those things, Andrew, and I appreciate the panel sharing their perspectives and things that need to be considered in the context of an hour, in, in this process. I think that um, the conversation needs more time and space to address all of those things and that's something that we can certainly do. Um, maybe not in this context, but um, in a room somewhere with lots of pieces of paper and pens and we'll just map it. Um, and we'll address those things as they come up because you can't, you can't solve it in two hours. Um, but for me, I think that, um, you know, I've said before, fundamentally we're visitors on this country and echoing Maddie Miller's statements from earlier, we have a responsibility to abide by the laws and values of this country and every single process that, or every single project should start from that place. And even if, because uh, to me that means it's starting from country. Um, and, you know, if that's because it's embedded in the planning system, which would be ideal, um, or if that's because there is the start of an engagement process with traditional owners for those projects, that is a commitment to be an ongoing process, and I think that would be important. Um, that, you know, it's a highly complex space, but I think there's a huge potential for it to change the way that architectural projects unravel and unfold, and without without that guidance at that early stage, there is that huge cultural risk on all practitioners, Indigenous or not, to be speaking on behalf of somebody else's country when they don't have the right to. And I don't know if our profession fully understands what kind of cultural risk that is. Indigenous people do, but other people don't. And they don't know that they're doing the wrong thing because the system's asking them to do the wrong thing. So the system has to change. Um, and I think that there are there's sort of all manner of ways that that needs to be done. Um, but it's about everyone taking the responsibility to do it because it has to happen from developers, it has to happen from governments, it has to happen from planning, it has to happen from, um, from competition conveners, it has to happen from clients, it has to happen from everyone at every level. They all have a responsibility. And I think we probably need about 47 more hours to go through what all of those are. Oh, cracky. I've only got one thing, I think, which is, and I said it already, that um, whatever, we, whatever we think needs to happen within a competition process needs to have already been started before the competition. Yeah. Are we all going around saying, oh, shit. Yes. Yeah, you go. Yes, I introduced myself already. Um, oh, I think just um, more yarns like this is really great for um, the industry because um, I think this was... I've been sort of across the four talks so far um, and this was the first one that had a little bit of tension, which I think is actually really important because it starts to um, come to... Maybe not answers, but yet... Yeah, things that then come out of it like a further yarn which then will come to processes that then get implemented and I think um, that's just amazing and yeah really valuable so oh um, I mean one of the uh, sort of processes that we're going through at the minute um, is through the Victorian School Building Authority and that they've recently embedded that um, requirement in there um, you know, fixed fee um, 
I mean, that has its own problems, but, you know, that you, that you do have the capacity to, um, you know, um, demonstrate your understanding of the context and, um, and propose certain elements. And I think that that's, um, you know, the, in a way that came out of a conversation that Sarah and I and a few others had with, um, you know, this, the head of the VSBA. And I think um, it's always curious how... Um, how little it takes to make so much change in the power of one person or, you know, a, a group of people. And um, anyway, I think that's exciting. Uh, I'm Jane. I'm a non-Indigenous person. I'm an architect and I live and work on the Wurundjeri country. And this, I've had a glass of wine as well. <laughs> this is probably a little bit controversial, but I was just wondering if there could be some kind of, not registration process, but if people are constantly working within the same TO group, whether there's some kind of way that you can certify the relationship. So there's sort of a pre-qualification with the TO group. Sometimes we, we do ask for like community references. So could be like a community reference in terms of like the relationship and how you've managed the relationship when you've worked with community. Out of the last session, Dane was just saying how a lot of times there's no feedback loop after the consultation has occurred. And yeah, it would ensure that that happens and it sort of follows through. Hi, I'm Phil. Um, I work at City Lab with Andrew. Um, so pressure's on. But no, I've got like, I've come out of that conversation with so many good, you know, ideas and, and it's just amazing to hear from so many different voices. Oh sorry, hold a bit closer. Um, the main thing I keep looking back at in my notebook is that this idea of there being kind of a duality of, you know, an EOI or a, a competition being either one, which is um, you know, really defined and deterministic and de-risked, or two one which is open and undefined. And I think the main thing I drew from this conversation and also a conversation that was had um, as part of Melbourne Design Week um, a few days earlier uh, with Hill Thallus is that perhaps there's a need for there to be a sort of third way. And there was some ideas that were shared in this uh, conversation. You know, I think there needs to be a third way which there's a balance of clarity and um, the undefined. <laughs> um, so I think there's a real need to have a, you know, a lot of background research and, and a really clear brief that expresses both the needs of the client and traditional owners. Um, but then also the evaluation of, of that responses to the brief that are um, open and uh, you know, more about, more cultural and, and about uh, strategies and processes rather than, you know, build outcomes. And then also I think the way the design needs to be communicated in the public, and I, I think, for example, with the, you know, the shiny renderings of the NGV, you don't get a good idea of what's actually going on behind that project and because there's a lot going on and I think perhaps there is a greater need to... Um, you know, not highlight the built object, but, but really the ideas behind it. Um, so there's a couple of thoughts. Hello, 
my name's Tim. Um, I'm an architect, and I think the points I have have probably already been said, but um, I think just like having discussions like this and um, when it comes to things like competitions, like doing the work before the sort of competition starts and like including that as like part of the, the briefing process because um, it can sometimes feel when it's like not included, a competition can, can start and then it just feels like tacked on as like an element and um, I think it definitely needs to be something that's like the work is done before. Um, yeah. Hi, my name is Jeremy. I'm an architect. I work with Tim. Um, I agree. I think I've worked on a lot of competitions and um, I've worked on competitions with Andrew. <laughs> um, I think maybe there is a chance for there to be some engagement in the later stages of the competition. Maybe not with every team because there is a great burden placed on the traditional owners if there is a lot of competitors, but maybe when the field narrows, there can be an engagement process, um, just so that it can be early and ongoing and that it isn't, um, and maybe then there can be an understanding in the community that there's a commitment on both sides to um, creating good outcomes, I guess. Um, and then, and then, and then that there is an ongoing um, strategy and understanding and conversation throughout the project. Um, but um, I guess that's a challenge, as everyone said. Hi, I'm Jeff. I spoke before. Uh, look, I can only encourage Andrew to pursue the first of your options, i.e., allow stakeholder engagement where one and been participated in many competitions and then part of the requirements is actually in the brief is to engage in stakeholder engagement across the board and you've already got a design it's it's all pretty silly really and you know, I think if we can somehow manage it where we can again all sorts of groups uh, it's a lot cleverer solution for everyone really but uh, it's a great debate enjoy the conversation uh, hello, my name's Tom Heath. I'm a master's student of architecture at Monash. Um, I think one of the key takeaways for me, and Sarah, please correct me if I got this wrong, but um, in the absence of time and the ability to carry out uh, like thorough uh, engagement with traditional owners is um, this idea of deferring to uh, law and uh, that being uh, caring for the waterways and caring for the children. So I guess, uh, yeah, I kind of uh, found it poignant that if you don't have the capacity to carry out anything else, that as an absolute minimum is a good place to start. Hello. Um, my name's Hayden. Um, I'm also a student um, of architecture at Monash. Um, and I think, sorry, I've lost my train of thought now. I'm Tiernan. I'm also a student of architecture. Um, I guess more a comment, but I guess something that's been going around in my head was uh, something Sarah said about the lack of ability to sort of quantify 
the things we're talking about here and the shift to well, how it's a cultural thing and then I guess the broader perception and how the design community, I guess, has a somewhat of a skew of being able to sort of understand things through a sort of quantifiable ability. And I guess, I don't know, yeah, I don't know, but I guess I'm interested in that sort of shift of, um, well, that sort of mental shift, I guess, for some fields in how you sort of move to appreciate and sort of uh, understand in a similar sort of capacity that I guess designers are used to understanding sort of through numbers and understanding in sort of quantifiable factors. Um, so I liked what was a comment made earlier about um, the way architects are like rethinking their relationship and, and their design process. And I think that's something that is true, at least from my experience as a student and talking to other students about how we value our design process. Um, and I think it is something that's changing from this kind of authorship and ownership over a design project to now this kind of culture that this kind of collaboration and thoughtfulness is expected. Um, and that's what makes a good design. And as much as you can't just wait for that kind of generational shift to end, I think it's almost hopeful that, you know, that's, that you're doing something right in that that's the kind of experience I've had in architectural education. Um, and I had another point too about um, what Andrew said that the, about all of the eligible indigenous um, competitors, like being, instead of being on the panel, being able to um, participate. And then, then, like I think it, then it starts with education again in that you need to get as many educated, um, well, in a very broad sense of the word, um, educated Indigenous peoples in the built environment that are able to have this authorship themselves. Um, and I think that would be an interesting way to, not that we shouldn't have collaboration processes, but, you know, to kind of, I guess, a bit of a shortcut, if you understand. Uh, hi, I'm Adam, I'm an architect. Sounds like an AI meeting. <laughs> Um, all I'll add is that I think there's an incredible um, gap in everyone's knowledge that we all have to work really hard at trying to fill um, to give people forums to, to share that knowledge. But it, it's not in university education as far as I know. Like, I haven't seen much of it beyond sort of some studios that have this as part of their, their content. So I think it's got to, you know, ground up wise, got to enter you know, primary education, secondary education, university education, all design education, because um, there's a point where everyone's going to take this forward because they're just, you know, I feel like there's just not enough people in the communities, you know, TOs or whoever, who can kind of give this. <laughs> like, this, like, what are we asking people to do? Like, how much time and effort? Um, it's just unreasonable. So it's also up to us to, you know, get that knowledge out, get into education system, share it, um, make it more diffuse so that more and more people can um, carry on this conversation. Thank you. Hi, I'm Amy and I'm an architect. Um, <laughs> uh, look, I think um, 
I think some of the things that I've spoken to Sarah about on competitions and submissions is uh, the lack of engaged Indigenous engagement that happens before you get a brief and the value that that brings to uh, the briefing process is absolutely fundamental to the response that will occur and that that needs to be something that's just embedded within the way that projects and competitions and EOIs are now procured moving forward. But I think, you know, great, this is this this forum is amazing to be able to um, to talk about these issues. I think it's very positive. Um, hi everyone, my name's Hermione and um, I'm a Master of Architecture, oh, sorry, I'm completing my Master of Architecture at um, uh, Uni Melb um, and I'm also working in industry um, and I just wanted to say that as a student I feel like we're not really exposed at all to these to this conversation um, at university throughout my whole degree um, including my undergrad and if it was um, it had to be a very kind of self-driven endeavour so yeah I think I'm just grateful um, thanks to everyone who contributed and um, has educated me more about um, this issue. Hello, my name's Anthony. I'm also from FJMT Studio. Um, I don't have too much knowledge on the bidding process for community work and that kind of stuff to add, but I think one point that was made quite clear tonight was about how we're guests to this country. Uh, we don't, this isn't our country, well, it is for some people. And so I think if we treat design from the start with that sensibility on this place and as professionals seek out to sort of learn more about place that, or the history of place that isn't colonial history and that can be difficult but I think as professionals we need to sort of engage in these kind of discussions and sort out that knowledge and then as a sort of profession we can build up that knowledge further. Thank you. Hi everyone, uh, my name's David, I'm an architect as well. Um, firstly, thank you for um, the yarn. It's been really informative. Um, as a person of, that's not Indigenous, um, uh, I feel like I've learnt a lot tonight. Um, but uh, probably one thing through some of the work we've done in the past, more recently, with Kayleen Brad, is um, finding access to the right people um, through the TOs and um, uh, the Indigenous groups is, can be difficult sometimes. Um, through the consultation process and getting to the right people. Um, and I know Kaylee has uh, some great insight in that. So it was a really great process to be involved in um, with on projects recently. Um, but it sounds like through some of the commentary tonight is that, yeah, education from the start um, and getting exposure to um, some of the thinking and thoughts and I mean, the ideas uh, Sarah you have of um, uh, the cultural law coming in as something that needs to be considered from the start. I actually have no idea what the, the Indigenous laws are on, of countries, so it'd be great to understand what that is. And it's probably something that can be started from the ground up uh, through the education, education system. Hi, my name's Hilary, um, also an architect. I work with Brad at the moment. Um, thank you for the wonderful conversation. I think what I really took out of today is that conversation, the dialogue and the process, that it needs to be ongoing. It's, it's not something that's quantifiable, a, a checkbox. Um, 
and would be really interested to see how we as architects who build a static thing can start to incorporate something that's about process and an ongoing dialogue um, and and not being afraid of, of making the wrong move. I think it, it was touched on multiple times today that to to make an attempt at, at, at trying a, a new thing or starting a new conversation is so much more important than just not doing anything at all, not kind of being frozen by fear. Hi, I'm Louise. I'm an architect. <laughs> I've worked with Brad and um, people here. Um, and apologies because I did come in very late, but um, a lot of what I have heard has really resonated. Um, and particularly that comment about um, some more um, detailed work done before um, EOIs and um, competitions come out. Um, and whether, I'm not sure, um, I know that the Institute do provide or did provide, you know, guidelines for local government or um, any other entities um, who are putting out RFTs and how much information is in that about recommending to local government or to whoever else um, the amount of detail that should be going into it ahead of the, um, the RFT going out. Um, yeah, that's, but it's what I have heard. It's been really enlightening, so thank you. My name's Shannon. I'm also an architect. Um, I think from this session and many discussions with Brad, um, I have just always an ever-growing list of questions. Um, and I guess it's probably clear from the conversations that there's not that many answers that are quantifiable um, just yet. So. You know, I think for me, as a non-Indigenous um, architect and very, very new to learning all of this um, process, when you are really short on time in a program um, and, as Kaylee said, you know, TOs are um, in really high demand and um, really stretched, where do you start to be able to incorporate... Um, you know, law and understanding what those are um, without it being token or cultural appropriation. Um, I think there's a bit of a gap that needs to be bridged between, yeah, shortness of time and um, availability of that information as well. Hi. So, um, my name's Susan. I'm also a non-Indigenous architect. Um, I really enjoyed tonight's discussion um, and I really like the idea of the focus being less on the design and more on the process. So starting off in the EOI stage, I think that'd be great and it'd be a good start to the conversations. Hi, I'm Hugh. Thank you. Um, I would just like to add that uh, we need to stay hopeful in the process and that the EOI should um, have built into it, uh, if it can't be done at different stages, that it can then be included later on and, and ongoing. Yeah. Thanks.
Yeah. I feel like we've heard enough from me tonight, to be honest. People, clients, government, who, who in particular? I feel like there's different messaging for everyone, right? Um, I think um, maybe if we go back to sort of EOIs and, and RFQs and, and if it's coming from a, a government client, you know, I think it's so important to sort of redefine your procurement process, ensure that there's, um, you know, Aboriginal staff involved with assessments um, of those... Uh, you know, proposals that are coming through. I think it's so important to weight traditional owner engagement um, and to be able to really make a call on um, what is uh, genuine engagement, what is just falling in that ticker box kind of a um, sort of section. Um, I think it's so important to be able to resource um, proper engagement properly and, you know, uh, really ensure that it is a part of any um, RFQ EOI going out from the outset. Yes, the earlier the better, as we've all discussed. Um, what else? You'll come, you can come back to me. I'll probably think of other things, but that's probably about it for now. Um, and Pavilion should have a toilet closer by. <laughs> <coughs> and uh, this, not only does this take a lot of time, but it costs money and that needs to be taken into consideration. Like, um, if architects and designers and people are expected to put this into their fee structures, then that needs to be taken into account. Pretty much what everybody said, I think. Um, government, absolutely get onto it earlier and get, it, uh, get a commitment embedded into the process before it comes to industry. Industry, um, revel in the collaboration and see it as a creative thing, not a, not a, uh, not a, um, you know, a kind of an impost to a design process. Um, and I'll swing back to government, follow through in the commitment that if it's a project that's built for the public good and community, to continue to invest in the way that that project runs and provides service to the community and and in that um, the traditional custodians who've invested their time to bring their knowledge and stories into that project um, and that that is not a uh, something that's um, uh, left at the commissioning of the building. In fact, it's the centre of the commissioning of the building and that it's an ongoing process. Great. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you very much, Kaylee, and very much, Neil, for your participation in this. And a special thank you to Sarah for organising this event and to M Pavilion for hosting us. Um, I guess I'm sort of sorry, but not really, that it kind of got a little bit combative. <laughs> um, I think it's really proven that uh, there's a lot more that needs to be discussed on this and that it's a really big topic and that it's, you know, it's going to take a lot of hard work from... Um, people in the industry and the people that are here. And, you know, I really resonate with Hugh's comments that um, it can be like, positive and, you know, we should, be, we should be aspirational and it is a great thing, even if it can be a little bit hard and stressful. Um, but, yeah, thank you very much.
You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.